This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Eliza Mondegreen researches online trans and detrans communities where she explores the ways questions and doubts are handled. She also writes about gender medicine for Substack, Unheard, and other outlets. And here's our conversation with Eliza. Welcome back to Transparency. Um, I'm Aaron Terrell. He is Aaron Kimberly. And today we are delighted to have Eliza Mondegreen back with us for uh, the second time. One of the rare few um, returning uh, guests. So um, thanks very much for being here, Eliza. Happy to have you. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's great to have you back. We were going to talk about the... um, uh, Originally... You were coming on today to talk about uh, your experience at the uh, U.S. PATH conference that happened uh, simultaneously to the GenSpect conference uh, that I was attending, um, Yeah, both in Denver, both early November, um, and just yeah, kind of talk about the uh, kind of, <laughs> yeah, what what went down there. So we still want to do that, but we also want to talk about uh, some more uh, recent news, which is the uh, New York Times article that Aaron um, and some other colleagues of ours were uh, featured in that it's kind of a, a mm-hmm. bombshell as far as um progressing the um uh, concerns about youth gender medicine and you wrote an article in response to it um but yeah anyway enough enough uh, introductions we'll just <laughs> go into that okay um i would love to hear more just from Aaron about the process of like being part of the article i think the way that it turned out it was really like nothing that had run in the new york times before I'm really happy with with how Pamela handled it, um, and it was a pleasure working with her. So she reached out to me um, because she had heard the podcast I did with Megan Dom on the Unspeakable podcast. Mm-hmm. She interviewed, you know, quite a number of us within our our social and professional circles, and so she reached out to me uh, just to ask more about what had happened at that the clinic where I was working. And that wasn't something I went into much detail um, into on the Megan Dom uh, podcast. So, it, you know, and, and I thought, um, I mean, there was a lot that I told her that, that was left out of the story for various reasons. I mean, it, but she, I think she was very thorough in her research mm-hmm. and um, you know, everything that she said is, is backed up and documented and they're fact checking. They did multiple levels of fact checking throughout the process. Uh, for me personally, she had a, a separate fact checker reach out to me and just kind of go through um, my statements, make sure that I, everything I said was accurate, you know, that they were representing mm-hmm. what I said accurately. And um, and they also called my former employer um, just to confirm that what I said was was true and accurate. So. I think it was it was very delicately handled and and fact checked and so I'm I'm really pleased with the process and and it was a pleasure to work with her. Um, you obviously had a lot of thoughts on the article as well, uh, Eliza. Oh, you wrote a bit for uh, Unheard, um, kind of deep diving into it. Yeah, I had one kind of insider question, which you may or may not be able to answer, uh, which was why was it in the opinion section? Because it seemed like a reported article. It really did. I mean, it was an investigative report. 
Yeah. Yeah. I've written a lot of op-eds and nobody's ever fact-checked them. So that seems <laughs> unusual. Yeah, I think it was one of those, uh, 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 yeah, kind of self-defensive moves on yeah. the New York Times, for sure. That's kind of how it seemed. Um, I mean, I thought it was a really good article. I was really, the interviews were really sensitive and it didn't, it was really the first article that's run in the Times that wasn't mostly an apologia for writing about it at all. Um, and, and that was that was good. And it was encouraging to read so many of the comments, like the reader comments in the Times articles are always the most interesting part for me. Because the readers have seemed so out of step with the paper for a long time. And what I noticed this time was a lot of people in the comments saying that, I, like there was someone in particular who I think reality girl on Twitter, she pointed this out, was like, I had been dismissing the things that my son had been showing me from conservative media about what was going on with like transitioning kids. And now I have to eat my hat, basically. I think, well, I hope that this is a moment that a lot of liberals can can take a moment to say like, okay, it is really legitimate and not a right-wing crusade to have some serious questions about this. It does kind of we'll also say, say say just how responsible the left-wing media has been in prolonging this scandal. Um, yeah. Yeah, that response right there. It's like, um, you know, I could I could dismiss the reality of all this because my news outlets weren't reporting on it. Um, it's really quite quite dire, I think. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that was that was the intent that the Pamela expressed to me was that she was writing from a left wing perspective, wanting to highlight the fact that the concerns that are being raised about the quality of our care isn't a partisan issue. And, and mm -hmm. that a lot of us on the left are, are equally concerned. Um, but the debate, unfortunately, because it's become so polarized and divided by left wing and right wing interests, the facts are being obscured, right? And, the, and then the yeah. left isn't willing to listen to the concerns because they think it's a, it's a right wing agenda, which is, which is incorrect. And, and so I think she accomplished that mission of framing this as there are concerns about a model of care and that's not a political issue. Um, so it, it, it's, I was really encouraged by, it seemed like the majority of comments on that article were supportive and, and uh, you know, very reasonable and, and in favor of just a return of, of common sense and our ability to speak openly about these things. And um, so that, I mean, that reinforced my belief that the majority of North Americans just want common sense and reasonableness and, and fairness and safety. Yeah, it, it seemed like a return to treating it like a normal subject that a reporter might cover. The and only comments that I so thought, yeah, the only, uh, I mean, I haven't read all the comments because they, they're well, there's like they're being overwhelmed like by comments now. But I, what I was seeing when the last time I read them was that the only few comments that were in opposition to the article were saying we're really reinforcing this idea that transition regret is rare. It's one percent, mm -hmm. blah blah blah, which is outdated information. I mean, the WPATH standards of care, the last version, the SOC seven. Um, and I looked this up last night. So on on page eight of the standards of care seven. Um, does quote that very low regret rate of 1%. But, mm -hmm. and that's the 1% that everyone keeps repeating over and over and over and over again. It's 1%. But what they fail to 
mention is that that, that section of the standards of care that quotes that 1% describes a model of an older model of care in which um, patients were carefully screened. Mm -hmm. And that's why we were seeing a very low percent rate. We can't abandon that model of care. We can't change the model of care, but still depend on this one, you know, this 1% being thrown around. It's really irresponsible to abandon the model of care that that resulted in a low percent regret rate, but still have the confidence that our regret regret rate isn't going to change. Yeah, and to change the patient population at the same time and say, well, at least, you know, it, it's very questionable how meaningful what patients in the past and patients now have in common is, I think. Yeah, not just what they go through, but just yeah. how they how they got there at all. Um, yeah. Um, Aaron T, what did you think? Oh, I was blown away by it. I mean, I, I was just so um, uh, the thing that stood out to me is like all of the other um, uh, pieces, even ones that are written by like Jesse Single, who gets the most flack for covering the subject. It's very <laughs> much like most people benefit from transition. She didn't do that. She didn't do the most people benefit. They are the um, the regret rate is you know uh, you know quite low, but we do need to care about these people who do regret. It was none of that. It was just like, just straight up. These are the experiences. This is how, um, irresponsible, uh, this, this healthcare mm -hmm. model is. Um, and it was just, yeah, it was very, yeah, I, I was just, yeah, really impressed by the forcefulness, um, of it all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it being published, a very, very meticulously researched article being published as an opinion piece, um, is, it's weird. It, it is. It is. I, I think one thing that I need to keep in mind, or, or it, it was kind of evident to me when I was reading um, uh, Kathleen, whomever, who wrote the um, uh, the apology, <laughs> essentially yeah, yeah. Uh, for the for the op ed. Um, I wonder how many parents of trans kids work at the New York Times. How many trans yeah. employees are. Uh, you know, working at the New York Times. And so it's not just a case of, oh, we don't want to offend our readership. I think a lot of it is in very, very emotional, internal um, yeah. pushback could be, could also be influencing that opinion. And yeah. that was, that was the theme that I noticed in the critical comments too, was like, people would say like, oh, well, I'm the parent of a trans kid and I'm really offended by this article. And it's like, I'm not surprised. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, you know, Pamela did come back to me after I was interviewed, you know, she came back to me multiple times to just, you know, like I said, fact check and, mm -hmm. and clarify things. And one of the things that she came back and asked was, how did I feel about my own transition? Because it wasn't the intent of the article to say, nobody benefits, you know, right. and that, you know, that she wasn't trying to invalidate trans people who are happy with their transition and are just moving on with their lives. And so she came back and asked, how are you feeling about your own transition? So that part, that part was added mm -hmm. um, that I'm, I don't, I mean, there are aspects of my care that I, there are aspects of my care I didn't agree with, but I mean, I think I've experienced a net positive and I'm happy to state that I'm not going to lie and say that I haven't benefited in any way, but I very much got the impression from Pamela and her editors that they were trying to get the story right, that this is a criticism mm -hmm. of a model of care that some people may benefit from, but it's doing harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the right balance. Yeah. 
and was really, really impressive that just again, that, that um, it was reality girl who shared that, that screenshot of that comment from um, a woman who was saying, Oh my God, I can't believe this medicine is this, or you know, in quotes, medicine is this, um, you know, um, uh, irresponsible. My son's been telling me for years that this is what it is. And I've never, be- I haven't believed him. I'm, I'm telling him that you're, you know, his sources are wrong, but now the mm-hmm. New York times published it. Now I believe it. And so I think that's a kind of a, probably a, a common response. Really glad it's finally happening. Much too late, but it's happening. Um, uh, oh crap, I lost where I was going with that. Damn it. Oh yeah, yeah. Just the fact that it's that the whole piece highlighted in a very detailed way how how incredibly negligent and non non scientific. Uh, the mm-hmm. healthcare is, and so many people just assume, like that uh, that woman commenting, that that there are teams of people, you know, that for different specialists, carefully screening each individual patient to make sure that this is the right course of action. When in reality, you just show up and say, "Hey, I want to transition," and they're like, "Here you go." Like yeah. that's 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 the model yes. of care, and uh, yeah. yeah, when people understand that, it's yeah, going to change a lot. Yeah, that was the most interesting part of her comment was when she was like. I assumed that for something like so much more serious than the ordinary thing I would go to the doctor for that, like, of course they must know what they're doing. And of course they must be, you know, taking every step to assess it and ensure that the treatment is right. And it was just like, and I was wrong. And it was like, yeah, a lot of people are kind of passing the buck in that way where it's like, somebody has it figured out. Yeah. I don't understand it. Somebody understands it. Because what's really like, going yeah, on, you sound like a conspiracy, like oh, paranoid yeah, conspiracy yeah. theorist. Yeah, I don't think people understand that it's a wild, wild west out there and that clinicians, you know, across the board are practicing in very different ways from clinic Mm -hmm. to clinic or office to office. And even in the clinics that are doing this like full on informed consent model, which is just which means you just go in and basically sign a waiver and you get the hormones that that is being practiced in many places. And even in those clinics, I'm sure there are individuals who walk out of there feeling like they've benefited, but, but those that are harmed are being silenced. And and so it's, it's really, um, it's really dishonest to keep kind of promoting this 1% regret rate while actively silencing the voices of anybody that's been harmed. And I was, Disappointed, but not at all surprised to see some of our legacy organizations like GLAD try to smear the piece, even though the article featured gay and lesbian individuals who are clearly saying I was harmed by these practices and are organizations that are supposedly representing gay and lesbian rights alongside trans rights were just completely dismissive of those claims. I mean, they're obviously not. I hope that makes it very, very clear to a lot of people that our legacy organizations are no longer, you know, acting in the best interest of homosexuals. Yeah. They couldn't even like throw any kind of sympathy toward what Paul and Casey talk about, about, you know, not being able to accept yourself as being gay or lesbian. They just, yeah, it was just so heartless. Yeah. The, the organization that's, you know, what uh, gay and lesbians uh, association or whatever, it, whatever uh, against defamation. Uh, 
is just committing <laughs> a shit ton of defamation against gay and lesbian people. Um, it, it's like Julia Mason points out, you know, it's a completely topsy-turvy, upside-down world where these yeah. organizations that were founded to do this or to protect this subset of people are now the ones who are, um, you know, yeah. committing the things they were, yeah, formed to uh, defend. But that's what happens when, you know, as I put it, a totalitarian ideology has uh, taken over uh, these institutions. So, well, yeah. do you want to say any more of that about the piece or do we want to move on to the totalitarian? Um, I hope there's more like it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, yeah. I think it's yeah. one of many to come, it seems. I hope so. I hope that is the, you know, the end result of that article. I hope it just opens up the converse, a more honest conversation. And I hope it gives other media sources the courage to, to ask the questions and, and make sure that we're, that we're getting the, this right. You know, we, that through the conversation that we start to have some safeguarding uh, and regulation of our healthcare so that, you know, to, so that we can get back to maybe that very, very, very low regret rate, you know, that, that we're targeting interventions that we're doing whole person care and targeting interventions to very specific, um, very specific diagnosable problems. I mean, that, that should be common sense in any medical practice, right? Is that clinicians <laughs> right, have you sound a, like I, a really far out crazy person I, saying I that, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, the question that I'm at, I've been asking in response to some of like, you know, the, the Twitter meltdowns from, from the more ideologically captured institutions and clinicians is just asking, well, what is gender dysphoria and how does it develop? Because mm -hmm. if clinicians like Jack Turbin can't answer that question, they have no business being in part of the care of treating that condition. I mean, if you had a, a cardiologist who couldn't answer the question, what is what is cardiac disease, then they have no business practicing cardiology. Yeah. <laughs> so I would encourage anyone who's looking for just some small way, right, to push back, just keep asking that question of these clinicians. Uh, another promising thing um, about the, just the, the response to that article, a lot of people within the uh, LGBT Courage Coalition have been reporting that people that don't know that they're involved in it have been texting them and sending them that article being like, oh, hey, you'll want to read this or this is what you've been talking about, too, which is kind <laughs> of really indicative of a, kind of like a very wide reach amongst the, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the liberal yeah. armies. Yeah. I also want to give a, just a shout out to our, our newly formed LGBT Courage Coalition because several of, of the individuals, including myself, um, in the article are a part of the, the coalition. Um, I know that the, in the article, they link to our Substack account um, mm -hmm. that we've reached, we've recently launched our website. So we're hoping to get that hyperlink change so that it links to our website, but we'll post our website in the, in the liner notes here so that people can learn about the coalition and the work that we're doing. As well as of course, yeah. Yeah, I link to the article and, and uh, yours as well, Eliza. Yeah. And you guys have also um, been having a little bit of fun with the WHO Guideline Development Group. Maybe fun isn't quite the right word, um, <laughs> but what's some success? Yeah, yeah. I'm hopeful that the WHO didn't really know what they were getting into, and that they can be brought to their senses. Although I'm not, you know, 
delusional enough to think that that's the most likely scenario. But we'll see. I, I think well, it I heard- is possible just because just because the. The Who is is you know completely international, right? I'm not sure how much of its members are from North America, but it's only going to be a small portion, right? And this seems to be a very isolated to this continent mental disease. Um, it, it, I think that there's there's really um, the potential for pushback because they're like, okay, we don't believe this nonsense, though. Uh, that, again, I, I don't know. Hope. I mean, I, I think it is like a Western culture bound syndrome, but then we have NGOs that have that kind of export those values all over the world. And then those are the people who are kind of like ending up on the guideline development groups and shaping these things. So I I feel like it is much more pervasive than it should be just within like a certain circle, even though, you know, I mean, the, the guideline development group for for the WHO on this issue, like, you know, they have people from from India, from the Indian WPATH, for example, who are espousing these crazy views. And yet you think about like, okay, do you really in India like want legal self-ID when there are such huge problems around like sexual violence and inequality for women? And um, like there has to be a reality check at some point, but I'm not sure that any of the reality checkers are likely to be the super well-connected NGOs that the WHO listens to. And maybe I'm naive, but I mean, the the, the way that that, um, and, and we'll link to that campaign with the WHO so people mm-hmm. understand what we're talking about, but the WHO assembled a panel that was entirely ideologically aligned, right, of, of one way of thinking about these things and, and very specific things that they're pushing for, which gives the impression that the WHO within the WHO has people that are equally ideologically captured. But I also heard... Um, and I have no way of, of uh, you know, of um, confirming this, but I heard that the WHO in the, re- in the public response to that, um, that they were actually really surprised and gobsmacked by the, by the resistance, which mm-hmm. makes me think that organizations like that and, and our governments and certain institutions are only hearing one message from the LGBT. And, and so maybe they just assume that supporting the LGBT means that they're listening to to this because they think somehow that that is representing all of us and all of our opinions mm-hmm. and all of our interests, not understanding that that minority cohort of activists is actively silencing and, and coercing the rest of us, right? We didn't mm-hmm. elect these people to represent us that they are um, pushing a very, a very one-sided ideological um, position and actively telling the rest of us to shut up. I mean, it's being it's being um, it, it's being enforced upon us, and and not representing our interests. And in that, I mean, that was very, like I said, that was very clear to me in, in the way that Glad had a total meltdown over the article. Is you know right. just smearing this journalist as as somehow fabricating things and and having this very malicious agenda, even though it was very clear in the article that, you know, lesbians saying I did this because I didn't want to be gay and I feel harmed and traumatized by this. I mean, these, so I I think, I hope that that is a wake up call to the who, and I hope similarly our government start to wake up to that, that the people that their hand selecting 
maybe in a well-meaning attempt to support the LGBT, and I, I appreciate that intent, but they're only hearing from a cohort of people and they're not listening to the rest of us. So I hope that's something that, that we and, and other organizations and the LGBT Courage Coalition can start to, to highlight for the public and these institutions that we're not all on the same page, that we're not a monolith. We have mm -hmm. differing opinions and many of us are appalled by what's happening in the name of the LGBT. And it takes an enormous amount of courage to stand up to them and to speak our truths because there is a fallout. And when our own legacy organizations are smearing us for speaking out, there is a cost to saying anything against this current agenda. Yeah. I think, I think the, the, it was really kind of <clears throat> uh, um, relieving to see how, how surprised uh, the who was by the pushback. Cause again, I, I do think that, um, that speaks to their ignorance on the the political division here, and they were literally, I believe, having having been re like recommended specialists, and a lot of these specialists have PhDs in front of their names, and they're 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 literally out of a place of ignorance, going, oh, these are the these are the the healthcare the actual doctors who specialize in gender medicine. They're not thinking mm -hmm. these are the people who are ideologically invested in not exploring the actual science of this matter. And so I think, yeah, I think it was kind of out of a place of ignorance. It's like, yeah, then a few of the people on the, on the, um, on that uh, panel were not at all um, doctors such as Florence Ashley, who's purely an activist. And so they, they cut her. Right. And they're like, okay, Florence mm -hmm. Ashley's not going to be on the panel. Um, and they're taking, uh, you know, just basically taking a step back to, reevaluate the entire situation because I, I do think it was from a place of ignorance literally thinking oh these are the specialists of trans care and these are going to help us form this policy yeah hopefully yeah. Yeah. Is, is literally out of a place <laughs> who, of ignorance who, yeah who are self-appointed experts right and, and we believe them as you say we believe them because they have the letters behind their name but i hope a big reckoning that's coming is against all these people that have basically used their positions, they've used their academic positions, they've used their professions, whether medical or in the case of Florence Ashley, her, her legal profession and her, her position as now a legal professor, they're using their professions, regulated professions to promote and push a political agenda. Mm -hmm. And, and I hope a reckoning is coming because I think that is highly unethical for people to use their position as a physician or a psychologist or a lawyer to push their political agenda. And especially in the case of medical professions, not just pr pushing a political agenda on the public, but they're pushing their political agenda on patients. When is that okay? It's never okay. I mean, I have, mm -hmm. I have political beliefs. I vote for certain political parties. I have certain faith-based beliefs. And it, it's part of my ethics is in my profession to not try to indoctrinate patients into believing my spiritual or political beliefs. And that's exactly what's happening on such a wide, wide scale, scale that, you know, I, I hope that, I hope regulators at some point crack down on that because it's, it's, it's a breach of trust yeah. on the public. You know, because we want we want to believe that we can trust physicians. We want to. That's why we have regulators, and that's why we have letters behind people's names. Is because the public should be able to trust our professions, 
and our regulators. And, and that, that chain of trust has been entirely broken. And that's why it sounds so conspiracy theory ish because these, these institutions that we believe that we can trust have, have, have failed us. Yep. You have a lot of thoughts of your own on the whole uh, reckoning and how it's, uh, not going to happen, Eliza, and I, I hate you for it. But um, <laughs> no, but I, but I thought for a long time that um, that reckoning that I was like, who who is the ultimate? Who's going to be the ultimate authority who um, can basically hold WPATH and all these other mm-hmm. downstream organizations accountable for this uh, scandal? And I thought that organization would be the WHO. So I was yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah extra concerned um but yeah you you don't think that it's going to happen at all no i don't i mean i i think one of the like one of the things that i take away from the expansion of the concept of gender affirming care is like okay right now it's useful to have a really broad definition where we're like it's okay to tell you know a girl that she can wear a dress and that's gender affirming care and dying your roots is gender affirming care and shaving your legs and whatever um right now it lets you know, activists say, how can you object to this? Like there are all of these unobjectionable things in this category. And in the future, if we come to a place as a society where we think that this isn't great and shouldn't happen anymore, um, they'll be able to say like, well, when I supported gender affirming care, it was always these like, you know, really innocent, unobjectionable things. And I, I do think that, you know, given the the buy-in of so many institutions, um, I, and like so many elites that it will be very, there will be a lot of people who have an incentive and never looking closely at how this happened and they will probably get their way. And those of us who had concerns too early will remain problematic because we didn't have concerns at the right time. You know, I, I just kind of a pessimist in that sense, but. We'll I agree with you. I think, I think a lot of people will just kind of quietly walk back on their positions and and hope that yeah. their whole past just just you know just disappears conveniently um yeah. while while holding resentment to the early whistleblowers yeah and just so many people will have the same problem that they'll manage it for each other well that's already happened actually with um so i it, this wasn't named in the article but it, you know um transcare bc was sort of at the heart of of my story Mm-hmm. Um, what happened at my clinic. And I noticed that since SOC 8 has been published, that they've already walked back on, well, even before that, um, within months of what happened, you know, at my clinic and my public advocacy about that, they already started to walk back. And, and I noticed that they um, started to endorse assessment. But then when mm-hmm. SOC 8 was published, their website was completely revamped. And now they say, you know, assessment must be done according to almost saying, this isn't us guys. Sorry, this isn't us. Don't be mad at us. But SOC 8 says we have to do assessment. And so we have to do assessment. Yes. And they took and they took out the line. I uh, I got a screen capture of their old website but where they said that you don't have to be trans to access gender affirming care. They've since removed that from the website. So they're quietly walking back on, on what they did and, and will probably face absolutely no reckoning at all. 
Um, but then maybe this is a great segue because I mean, we originally yeah. invited you on to talk about being at the US Path Conference. So US Path is, you know, the or the organization in the United States that's associated with WPATH. So um, a collection of, of specialists in this field, um, self-appointed experts in the in the field got together at a conference in Denver and which you attended. And I think that would actually be a great um thing to move into because as we're, you know, kind of I think it will really deepen and, and highlight the under our, our listeners' understanding of that article and contextualize that mm-hmm. when you're in a room with these experts, what kinds of conversations are happening, what kind of education are they are participants receiving? So I would love to mm-hmm. hear what you what you saw at that conference. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the most interesting thing at this point, I've been to three conferences. So the the WPATH one in Montreal, the European path one in in Killarney uh last year and then Denver um and what is they're very unlike other medical conferences that I've been to I used to work in the field of public health so I was you know kind of had a a set of expectations going in and this was just very different and the purpose the best way that I could think of to describe it was that it's kind of this convocation of the faithful in a time when they're under siege and that the conference is kind of built around the set of parables of like the good gender clinician and the bad gender clinician and what does a good gender clinician do and what does a bad gender clinician do and and all of the speakers kind of spoke to those two types of people how to not be the bad one how to you know progress further in your development toward being the good gender clinician um, and and this would look like there were conversations in Denver about um, leaning into the nuance of capacity. That's a quote. And they would they would talk about like they role played a patient who was autistic, had developed like learning disabilities and developmental delays, was a you know very young adult, had a schizophrenia diagnosis. Um, had a recent psychiatric hospitalization, identified as a demi boy, and wanted a hysterectomy and a phalloplasty. And they were like, okay, this is something that would make some clinicians uncomfortable. Read a bad gender clinician would feel uncomfortable with this patient. And we're going to kind of lean into the nuance of capacity and show how, you know, you don't have to be intimidated by conversations around capacity. But then in the process of like role playing, working with this patient, oh, so they don't wait, actually, so capacity yeah. and capacity to consent capacity to consent to some of the most serious surgeries like in this field um and at the when they're role-playing they don't run into any actual barriers they're like the patient didn't understand why the surgery couldn't happen all at once so we explained it and then they got it and like it was just every barrier was just illusory and there was just no reckoning with the possibility that like maybe there are some patients who cannot consent to this either right now or maybe ever like there was just this absolute rejection of the possibility that like maybe it's not right for all patients. Um, and there were sessions about like patients with autism specifically and reviewing all of the things that a clinic could do to make the patients more comfortable. So you can schedule them at the end of the day when the clinic is quieter. 
Um, you can, you know, turn down the lights because the overhead lights could be kind of distressing. You could have fidget toys, like you could avoid asking them, you know, questions that require more than a yes or no answer. You can avoid like trying to make eye contact so that your patient would be really comfortable. And you can prepare them for the experience of undergoing surgery and like wound care and pain and things like that. But so they're thinking of every possible accommodation other than like, is it ethical to do this at all? And they are just, you know, they're doing this and they are the most effusively, like, friendly people that you can imagine. And they just, they just can't see what they're doing. They just can't look at it, um, which is the thing that's always really striking. Um, and, and and as part of like the education into like the good and bad gender clinician, the first full day of the Denver conference started with testimony from a patient who had wanted mastectomy and who, you know, kind of berates the, the surgeons in attendance that like no one would provide a mastectomy because the patient was like very, very obese. And because they've considered that to be a surgical risk. And so she said, like, I was only here, like, you know, I'm, you wouldn't be hearing from me today if somebody hadn't been willing to, like, break the rules. Good gender clinician breaks the rules to help patients, like, achieve their embodiment goals. Bad gender clinician says having a BMI of 40 is a huge risk. You need to lose some weight. Um, I've heard that sto the, the similar stories from within, just from a perspective from within the trans community. Because mm -hmm. I guess, I mean, the surgeon that um, back, you know, 20 years ago, there was only one surgeon in BC that was doing the mastectomies and he was uh, of a similar mind, right? These surgeries mm -hmm. don't go as well and, and don't have the same a safety outcomes and aesthetic outcomes if if someone is, is obese, um, which is just common sense but within the trans community that they really rallied, rallied around this concept that oh that surgeon is fat phobic yes and really push back on the on the surgeon saying you're just you know basically a fat phobic asshole that doesn't want right. to perform on fat people and completely dismissing the the safety considerations or or the aesthetic outcome considerations because they would they would have these surgeries and then feel like oh that looks strange because now I've got, yeah. you know, excess tissue under my armpits and, and, or, you know, or I had infections or it didn't heal as yeah. well. And, and, and I mean, that's, that's why the surgeon said lose some weight beforehand. Like, I mean, he said that to me, cause I have a little bit of extra tissue under here that our healthcare plan, they don't, they're really specific about what they'll cover and what they won't. So mm -hmm. they do cover the mastectomy, but they don't cover anything that involves liposuction. And in order to remove okay. some of that excess fat, it has to be liposuction, which they say is cosmetic. And, and so they don't cover it. And I asked the surgeon about, about what could I do? He said, I could pay out of pocket to have that done, or I could lose some weight. And I didn't have a meltdown, right? Like I didn't have a meltdown. You, you know, you fat mm -hmm. big asshole. You should just do like, it's. How it's yeah. kind of understood within, within the trans community is, um, that that basically surgeons are punishing fat people by denying yes. them the yes. surgery. It's like, it, it's not about their safety. It's about punishing them for being fat. It's right. Wild. And that is totally, totally like the mentality, like you would be punishing this autistic schizophrenic recently hospitalized demi boy if you don't give this patient these incredibly serious surgeries because you don't think that they can consent. Like yeah. that's not punishing the patient. 
But that's and the mentality. I, yeah. And it's the, it's the internal trans culture that is so backwards. Like instead of all that resource, you know, and all that energy you put into your anger about this supposedly fat phobic surgeon and the letter writing campaigns that happened and like the phone calls that happened, you know, to push back on that. Why not rally around making us healthier people? Yeah. Why not have workshops? Why not support each other to eat well and to get to the gym and actually yeah. be healthy? <laughs> yeah. Well, now the, yeah. I mean, the, the people that were in, you know, in the community 20 years ago, absorbing that messaging about that surgeon, right? Those are now the people who are writing these guidelines that say that it's you're punishing a schizophrenic demi boy by denying surgery that like, so that was, that was the thing that I really picked up on at the U S pass, not U S pass, excuse me, the U uh, S trans health summit in, um, in yes, San Francisco. Yes, that you went to last year. Yeah. The, this notion that um, any, um, the, that, that any kind of guardrails are discrimination. So that's how it's all mm -hmm. framed. Like any, um, just like, yeah, you were describing with the, with the, yeah, the, the, the phalloplasty example, it's, it's any, any, yeah, any, any kind of protective guardrail is just reframed as being a means of discriminating and only the bad gender clinic would discriminate against the poor. Yes. Yeah. The, like your discomfort or your questioning whether a patient has capacity to consent is like your hang up and you need to get over it and you need to not punish your patients because you because of these like hangups that you have that you can't overcome, which you have a responsibility to overcome. Like that is totally the climate. Um, and since you're mentioning the the San Francisco conference, um, I was of course texting you about this during uh, US Path and Jetspec that you showed up on the big screen. And I was very surprised to see you at US Path. <laughs> I will just well, down the road. <laughs> That's what this has come to, right, is these organizations are doubling down on their ideological positions and are starting to throw trans people under the bus. Because it's it's really remarkable too, because obviously, so so Dan Karasik, the, what he put he put me up there right based to say that I was essentially defaming him, that I lied about things that he said when clearly there's recording of him saying that it's it's um, yeah, but it's just it's remarkable. an interesting definition of defamation. <laughs> it's remarkable how they um they'll they'll say that you know this New York Times piece is all full of lies because it's saying that the care being provided has no guardrails. And then they're in their conferences being like, there should be no guardrails. But then when anyone reports on the fact there's no guardrails, they're lying. It's yeah. yeah. Well, it's like here in, here in Canada, this so the province of Alberta. So we now have three provinces that are starting to um, write bills and policies and laws to, to try to correct some of this mm -hmm. overreach in, of activism. So the uh, province of Alberta was the recent one and they announced a very comprehensive plan um, where they are, um, you know, I th and I thought the tone of it was beautiful. She, you know, she, she, the premier came out and said, you know, we, we love and support the trans community. We, we love and support these kids, but we're not going to allow any medicalization of kids under, I can't remember the age cutoff now. Yeah. 16, which, which legally is the age of consent here in Canada. So I think that's why okay. it has to be 16, but they said, we're not going to allow medical interventions prior to the age of 16. But for those who, you know, and later in life do transition, we're actually going to improve care. We're going to develop our own um, surgical team to make sure that care and proper follow-up happens to ensure better outcomes. And so that was all part of this package. And she's being slammed, you know, oh, for yeah. being awful and transphobic and and our legacy organizations are going to sue them. And 
it's just become so can't remember where I was going to go with that now, but it just becomes so nonsensical that, oh, but, oh, I remember what it was. So, uh, so here are the, all these activists saying these, all oh, these surgeries never happen to minors, but you can't ban them, but, but if you ban it, they're in an outrage. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the, one of the other things that really stood out to me from the conference was just how unseriously hormones are taken. Um, so there is maybe a little bit more caution around surgery, but like there were people at the conference who were basically saying in just a few more words that I'm going to use here, this patient was really like crazy and unstable, but like, I thought they were okay to have like start on hormones. Like they just don't, they just can't see it as a serious intervention. Um, and then there was like, there was a fascinating conversation that was, I think it was, no, it was not part of the conversation where you came up, Erin. Um, it was like a female gender commission saying people get hung up on how, you know, how can we make sure people are really trans and they're not going to regret transition. And she was like, and I'm just not interested in that question. Like to be very explicit. Um, there was a conversation about maybe the, the pos somebody raised the possibility of creating centers of excellence in trans healthcare to deal with more complicated cases. And then the response to that from the conference was interesting because it was like, okay, well, if you say that a case is complicated, that's stigmatizing. And then someone else said, well, if you create these centers of excellence, that would increase inequities. And then the third response was like, but then other providers would seem like centers of not excellence. <laughs> it was just like, please listen to yourselves. Um, was it like at that, was it at that conference where the, a case was brought up with someone with a dissociative identity disorder and not all of the, per, the internal personalities was, were in agreement? That was a WPATH. Okay. Um, I, I'm trying to remember if it came up again, like they came up around the edges, but the cases of like patients who think that they have multiple personalities and the multiple personalities disagree about what surgeries to get was like, was WPATH. And the answer was like, download an app and get a quorum. See, these were the kinds of cases that ended up getting me in trouble as a clinician because of the youth that I saw. I mean, some of them were very straightforward cases where they didn't have layers of other comorbidities, but I would say the majority of these youth were very highly complex. I don't think I saw anyone. No, I don't see anyone with it with who claimed to have multiple um, personalities, but I did see people who were in active psychosis. Yeah. And referred them on to mental health care, you know, like um, early psychosis intervention. And I was told I was gatekeeping services. And in yeah. some cases, when I would refer someone on to, to more specialized mental health care, those referrals would be rejected saying, well, I think you should start them on hormones first and see, see if, that resolves. if that resolves their mental health issues. But what, what does that mean for capacity to consent then? And what I was told um, by the health authority, because I asked the question, like when we're assessing, because they do say, they did give us a one page checklist of things to cover during our mm -hmm. that assessment, what they said they could be done in a single visit. Um, and they did say one of those things was to ask about their mental health history and any diagnoses they have, but there's no guidance around, okay, so I've collected that information, but now what is my decision-making pathway with that information? And, and I mm -hmm. said, so if someone is severely mentally ill, 
what do I do with that information? And the, and the response that I got from the health authority was, well, people have a right to be both mentally ill and trans, just mm -hmm. like they have a right to be both mentally ill and gay. Yeah, that was exactly what's come up at all of these conferences is like, of course, you can be traumatized and still be transgender. You can have multiple personalities and be transgender, or you can be psychotic and be transgender. And like, why would we? It's, it's again, it's that mentality of like, you are holding something against your patient if you are trying to protect them because you think they can't consent. Well, Florence Ashley, in her definition of conversion therapy, um, she so she was involved in the drafting of our federal conversion therapy law. And, um, and we were successful in changing some of the wording by adding clauses to that law mm -hmm. that would ex you know exempt and protect clinicians from conversion therapy accusations. So the two clauses that were added was that it doesn't apply to the assessment process when you're in the when you're discussing medical interventions. So they still allow for comprehensive assessment to be done. And they had a clause that um, says that therapists are allowed to explore with the client their identity formation and how, mm -hmm. how that, so basically an exploration, exploratory therapy, which is just another word for regular old therapy. So that Florence Ashley was unhappy with the, those limits because, uh, you know, and so she has been very aggressively pushing this idea that convert the, her definition of or their or whatever his definition of conversion therapy is um, the denial of medical interventions. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the specific request that Ashley had was that people refer to Ashley as that bitch. So if you want to read Rework that lesson. I, which I'd be happy to oblige. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So it was an interesting conference. Uh, and I I was online and not in person this time. I had been in person at the other conferences. And I, I really regretted that I wasn't able to see people at, at Genspect's. That would be nice. great. Yeah. 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 No, another thing that's interesting about these conferences, so the WPATH or or the regional versions of WPATH, is there are clinicians in, in BC that have been involved in trans healthcare for decades who are now afraid to go to those conferences. So for example, like endocrinologists who have been, you know, written papers and have served the community for many, many years are now afraid to go to those conferences because of this like this push to to self-identification and full on yeah. just informed consent they don't want specialists involved in the care so from from that ideological perspective why would we want an endocrinologist or a psychiatrist involved in our care right they, they just think no i mean any gp should be able to just write us a prescription for hormones or make yeah. a referral to surgeries as a part of you know our access to care so we're now elbowing out Ex a lot of expertise yeah a lot of the people who are the most responsible and it it really is like it it is the the death of assessment like there was a session where they were talking about how clinicians can dismantle their entitlement to know so entitlement to know why a patient feels the way they do or what the relationship between any comorbidities and the desire to transition is um it was just like, you have a responsibility to like, get over this and just so, be an instrument in the hand of the patient. 
so, so they're they're framing anybody who's curious about about how this uh, yeah, identity formation or anything. Yeah, it's, so it's it's basically you are uh, expressing an entitlement to know something yes. about your patient, and basically you need to rein that in because that's essentially just selfishness. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's long been you know a part of the trans culture of this. Um, I would call it paranoia about anyone who's not trans and any, any clinicians. So you put those two things together, they cisgendered, you know, in, yeah. in air quotes here, a cisgendered clinician is the most dangerous feared thing possible within our healthcare system. And like, so I remember, so just to contrast what's happening now to, to when I went through the system and even then, so that was about 17 years ago now. So there was a screening process, but even then they were tiptoeing into a more informed consent model long before WPATH went in that direction. Cause I, I was transitioned under SOC six, which was still endorsing like, the um, one year lived experience, you know, where you just sort of try on this identity and negotiate those boundaries with people before any medical interventions mm -hmm. are done to ensure that you're really ready. So that was still in our SOC six and I didn't do that. So they were clinical practice on the ground has been departing from standards of care for a long, long time. But there was still, when I went through an, a, an assessment process, so I was assessed over about a three-month period by the GP who was at working at their gender center. And then before any surgeries, I had to go see a psychologist. And she did quite a lot of screening. She did, like, she did screeners for all possible comor comorbidities. So I, I remember doing screeners for like personality disorders and, and I actually found that really helpful, especially now, like I'm grateful for it now that I'm in the public debate, because of course there's, when you speak out about these things, we get vitriol from all sides and accusations. Oh, you're just mentally ill and you're, per you know, you have a personality disorder. And, and I actually, I actually have been very well screened <laughs> and I, I know I don't. So <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, so it was a very careful process. And even the surgeon uh, who, the, who does, did the mastectomies, he also did a, a screener. So I remember mm -hmm. filling out like multiple pages of, of questions and he was asking thing, about things like sexual fantasies and, and all these things. And I remember the community being really angry about that, saying, oh, the surgeon's just a pervert. He's asking about mm -hmm. our sexuality. It's like, have you considered that's actually really important? to consider before chopping off your sex organs. Like if you have sexual fantasies of, you know, using female anatomy and now mm -hmm. you're going to rearrange them to, you know, to approximate male anatomy, has it ever occurred to you that you might not be sexually fulfilled? So or it wasn't these, yeah. so these questions aren't, aren't really for the knowledge of the clinician. It's really to help facilitate a thorough thinking process for the patient. Yeah. And I think to like draw kind of maybe impossible expectations into the light. And I think, you know, the basis of gender affirming care is impossible expectations. Like, I, it seems like that is something that's been that was recognized earlier in trans healthcare was like, you need to screen patients the way that you would for like, body dysmorphic disorder to see if like, what they want out of this is remotely achievable. Mm -hmm. And that has just gone out of the window, because it would be gatekeeping. Yeah. You know, when I did, so I did, there was a requirement before I had any of the genital surgeries that you had to be 
you had to have a surgical readiness assessment again. So there was the psychologist screening before the mastectomy. Mm-hmm. And then before the genital surgery, two clinicians had to assess me. So they, but they just sat in the same room together. So it wasn't actually two separate um, assessments. And the first thing they said to me when I walked in the room is we're not here to say no to you. We're here to support you. And mm-hmm. there was, there was zero expo- exploration of, what am I hoping to achieve? What do I hope, you know, the end result is. And I, well, there, there was one, actually that, that is entirely true. There was one statement saying that uh, they're finding that a lot of people who had the, what's called the metoidioplasty um, aren't satisfied with that result and end up <clears throat> reapplying for phalloplasty. I had already decided phalloplasty for me was off the table. I did not want to do that. So um yeah, but the rest of the rest of it was was just more questions about well, who's going to look after you yeah. after the surgery? Is anyone going with you? And those kinds of questions. So there was no pushback, and and I wish there had been because and one of the things that I find really appalling and and I don't know why I wasn't a better advocate for myself, but so I ended up having the surgery with Doctor Crane in the in the in Texas. Um, and I had been on that surgery wait list for about 10 years. Okay. And because um, we don't have a surgeon, we only have one surgeon in Canada that was doing those surgeries at the time in Montreal. And they had so many complaints about the outcomes of that from that surgeon. And in Canada, our, our health system is quite different. I mean, Canada isn't as litigious. And so Canadian practitioners don't keep the same stats and, and report on their outcomes in the same way that American clinicians do. So they they lost confidence in that surgeon in Montreal, and that's why they were starting to send us to the United States for these surgeries. And so I went. So the I had a consultation phone call with Doctor Crane. That was a ten minute phone call. He said, "Do you have any questions?" At that point, I felt like I knew everything I needed to know because I had done. I thought my due diligence mm-hmm. looking about this stuff online, not realizing how much of that information online is so tightly curated. So I ended up going down to Texas, had the surgery, and it wasn't any. It wasn't until after the surgery was done that I was told that I was actually not a good candidate for that surgery because based on just my own personal anatomy. Um, after the fact. And- after the fact. And at no point in that 10 years, well, in the last 17 years, actually, like at no point did anyone ever do like a pelvic exam or like just look at my anatomy to advise on whether I was a good candidate or not at no time. So it like, so in that 10 years that I was on the wait list, so I just got to kind of choose which surgery I wanted yeah. and what surgeon I could go to, but at no time did any of the clinicians who saw me, including the surgeon, actually look at my anatomy and say, well, okay, here's what we can do. Here's what we can't do. And just to make sure that my expectations for the outcomes would be aligned with what was actually possible. It That's never, kind of never weird. happens. So it wasn't like, until that never happened. It's just crazy. I mean, I had determined for myself I was a good candidate just based on things like what has the lower complication rate and those kinds of things. I knew that the guys that were um, heavier set, you know, like a, a obese patients don't tend to have very good outcomes mm-hmm. from a toidioplasty just because there's too much 
tissue in the way, but I mean, I'm not, I'm only slightly overweight. So I thought, well, that won't apply to me. So I had, I'd kind of determined for myself with what information was available that I, that I was a good candidate. And it wasn't, you know, like I said, it wasn't until I actually woke up from the surgery that they said I wasn't an ideal candidate. And did you feel like it only came up then because I don't know, is it like to protect themselves? I don't know what that's about. I mean, I think, I think part of why I was never examined is because there's this belief that we're all so dysphoric that we, you know, we never want anyone to look at our bodies until the surgery's done. And so they just never, yeah. they never offered that. And so I wish I had better advocated for myself and kind of insisted that someone kind of checked things out and made sure my expectations were, were, were sound. So when I came out of the surgery, um, my wife went down there with me and the surgeon talked to her afterwards and said, okay, this is what, this is what happened. And this is what's going to be needed in the future. Mm -hmm. So it, additional surgeries are going to be needed in the surgery to improve the outcome. And, and then when I, while I was still down there, I had both, I think three checkup appointments and they also explained to me, okay, this is what we need to do surgically just to, to improve this. And and they were just so confident, right? It's like, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this, and this, and you're going to be fine. Um, but when I came back to BC, um, BC started its own surgical program. So follow-up care was then done by that team. And I was told I wouldn't be going back to Crane for, for the follow-up. I would be doing it there at that clinic. Mm -hmm. And all the things that Crane said that they would do, you know, this, this nipping and tucking and you know, whatever, I can't even remember what he said, but there was like, three things that or four things that they said that they were going to do. The surgeons in BC said that wouldn't even be safe to do because it would have compromised the, the entire blood flow system to, to my anatomy. So they were very tactfully saying that, that the work that Dr. Crane is doing, that he's overly confident yeah. and he takes reckless risks. But it was disappointing because then that it was basically being told that the things that were promised to me weren't actually realistic or safe and couldn't be done. And so I'm kind of stuck with an aesthetic outcome that I'm not happy with. Yeah. And it seems like you couldn't consent because it was never made clear what you were like signing up for. I was clear. The two things I was clear about, because I want to be fair about this. I mean, I was warned that um, strictures and fistulas is a risk anytime you're mm -hmm. basically creating a, a urethral extension there is risks that that urethral extension will will develop scar tissue and close off your your urethra which would be in a medical emergency or that that hookup could fail and, and you'd end up mm -hmm. with like with um basically holes in the in that so i did end up developing two um fistulas so two in two places the areas you know the, the graft didn't work and, and split open. So I was, I was prepared for that. I knew that that was a possibility that that would happen. But in terms of just the aesthetic outcome and, and what my expectations were, that was completely unrealistic in, in hindsight. It's, it's very much akin, like when you say that they didn't want to do, uh, or they, they tend not to do an exam um, beforehand just to, you know, avoid triggering dysphoria or whatever. It's very much on the same lines as, you know, oh, when you're bringing in an autistic patient to, you know, clear them for flat phalloplasty, make sure the lights are low so they're not, you know, overwhelmed by the light. Like, it's, it's such, like, let's tend to this really kind of superficial psychological issue 
rather than this incredibly dangerous um right this very physical. profound intervention yeah yeah let's let's protect them from you know the harms of lighting that's too bright you know but but right, usher, them, like, usher them into answer question yeah no it was it was really remarkable and like even talking about patients like Aaron you got dinged at this conference like we were talking about for for your uh recording and then proving that Karazik had said some crazy things that he in fact did say and at this conference I mean the same kinds of things were said where it was just like they were talking about nonverbal autistic patients again and that you should ask yes or no questions so that they can, you know, they can nod or shake their head. It wasn't draw a picture, but it's the same, you know, it comes from the same place. Right, right. So, so what yeah. they're saying, I, I lied about what they said. They right, go on and say the same conference. thing. Okay. Yeah. 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 What they don't seem to understand is that going through these medical procedures is very stressful. Yeah. So if you have a patient that is mentally unwell, that, you know, that, that can't handle light that's too bright, but they can somehow handle these very complex social, physical, you know, medical complications. It, it, and even though, I mean, I went through all the screening in here and you've said this too. I mean, you were, uh, you didn't have a lot of comorbidities. I was, I would say I was reasonably mentally well um, going into these interventions, but for a period for a period when I first started the medical pathway, it was destabilizing because it's so stressful and you're having yeah. to in a very short period of time renegotiate your social connections because the lesbian community that I was a part of at the time, you know, as soon as I announced that I was on testosterone, they're like, okay, you're out. Like so it was it was socially destabilizing. It was psychologically destabilizing. I had a two-week period when I first started the hormones where I just, I was just sobbing uncontrollably. Like it was just so stressful and the loss of community and, and all those things. Right. And then you're in this in-between state of you're not really passing and you're kind of ambiguous appearing. And that was stressful. I was in nursing school at the time and I could hear nurses like behind my back talking about, is that a man or a woman? And like, it's stressful and you're taking someone that's psychologically unwell. I mean, it was stressful for me. You're taking someone with autism or psychosis on top of that, and you're putting them through these interventions and this social experiment that's very, very stressful and, and expecting them to do well. And, and that's such, that's just, that's just, I don't know. Yeah. It, it makes me angry. Yeah. And that there would just be this level of like, just handling someone with kid gloves until the moment that like you operate on, like, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Cause the aftercare is, is notoriously right. poor. No one's holding her hand. It's not like we're all assigned a case manager. And this is something I really want to see built into the future system is everyone should be assigned a case manager that really follows them and make sure like, are you doing okay? Are you doing proper, you know, aftercare? catching you know infections really early and if they're not doing well making sure you have good mental health care like someone needs to be managing that yeah through that entire process if if you know if it's someone's well screened and it's determined that they you know probably would benefit from this they still need a lot of support through that that whole process and that was not part of the conference any of them like 
it's just not, it just doesn't seem to be on anybody's radar to deal with the, I mean, really just to deal with the reality of it. Yeah, and the it's, culture. it's kind of culture, it's an entire culture around around yeah. disregarding the reality. Yeah. Um, yeah. And instead it's a culture built around um, a sense of righteousness by discarding reality. Yeah, um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, like the US Path Conference had three different sessions that were devoted to public relations. And like, that was the main takeaway of the public relations advice was like, don't be specific with the public about like ages or, you know, what's involved or anything. Like it's really, like, it's really, really, really disadvantageous for us to be specific. But the thing is that when you are in these spaces among professionals, people who are doing this, you know, as their life's work and are involved in the most intimate details of it, they're not talking about this stuff either. Mm -hmm. Like there is this, the euphemisms do not start when they go in front of a microphone. Like it is pervasive and it absolutely affects the way that people think about what they do. And then there were, um, I mean, not to be all heavy, like there were moments at the conference that were just like super bizarre. Um, like there was a, there was a long discussion about the relationship between trans identity and fandoms. Um, so kind of the cosplay um, conventions and how, how gender affirming it could be to walk around in a costume and everybody be praising you for like gender play. Um, and then there was this discussion of like, I would not necessarily call these fandoms, but the person who presented it did. Uh, it was like medical fandoms, like the rectal progesterone fandom. <laughs> please, please that's, elaborate. <laughs> yeah, that's new. <laughs> I've never heard of that. <laughs> I had never heard of that one either. Um, it's apparently, I mean, it's a group of of men who who believe that if you inject progesterone into your rectum, it will have greater feminizing effects. Mm. Basically, turn your rectum into a vagina. Is that well? Is that... They didn't. They didn't say that, but. There were a lot of hopes attached to the to the okay. rectal administration, and it was just like, is it a fan? Like, is it? Should we think so, about this so, as a fandom? Oh, oh! So that's what they're doing. They're essentially saying these kind of um, uh, cult-like beliefs around medical care. We don't have to um, combat it or address it. We can just reframe it as a fandom, and that way, it's not our responsibility to correct this medical right. misinformation. Right. It's just a it's fandom. Like, it's this, like, it's cute. It's this cute little community <laughs> that has this, you know, it's kind of like the Harry Potter fans and they have their own, you know, Dumbledore is a time traveling, whatever. Um, and then there's the rectal progesterone fandom. Right. Right. And, and they're all equally uh, medically neutral. Was there any talk about the, the eunuch chapter being added to the standards? Um, of there was, I'm trying to remember, there was a, like a throwaway reference to one of the most controversial parts of the eunuch chapter. So at the first conference that I went to, which was the WPATH one, where they introduced kind of SOC 8, um, the eunuch session was the really contentious session. And it was contentious in a, it was contentious in an interesting way because what people expressed discomfort with was the language around eunuchs and not the inclusion, like the concept, the inclusion, the eunuch archive, like all the other things that like, you know, you or I might be more uncomfortable with. They weren't uncomfortable they were, with castrating people. They were uncomfortable with calling it castration. They were uncomfortable calling it castration. Yeah, exactly. They would be like, you know, we always use the terms that the trade use the terms the community uses, but the terms the eunuch community uses are just way too graphic. Like we have a word for this. It's gender nullification. Like, 
We should use it. Um, and then the only time that I remember Unix coming up at USPath was that there was a throwaway reference to like a child who might identify as a eunuch, which was one of the most controversial parts of the, the standards of care eight was the suggestion that like this could be an innate identity for kids at the same time that they're presenting research that showed that like, oh, I can't, I can't remember anymore what percent it was, but like that a crazy high percentage of these men had been threatened with castration by their parents when they were children. And they didn't think that this was like relevant. It was just like a curiosity. Yeah, they, pre they presented like um, it, it was just so weird to include it, right? Because they're saying, yeah. "Oh, a lot of these 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 men who seek who identify as eunuchs or seek castration, um, you'd think if you want to just keep that an identity, you wouldn't highlight the fact that they were often had this traumatic experience as a child right, of being, of threatened, being threatened, threatened with castration, by their like parents, or that a lot of them were like farm kids who participated in castration, like so they include that detail, on. but don't but ignore that it." that it could be contributing to this. Uh, right. Yeah. I so mean, science, I think, has ruled out the, you know, this idea that there's a somehow a biological mechanism in our brain that says I am male or I am female. I mean, there, there can't be a, there can't be a physical biological mechanism that speaks in words. So that, that is a, that is a cognitive process, right. By which we realize I am male or I am female and what that means in our, in our cultural setting. Mm -hmm. But even if there was a biological mechanism that that led to that awareness that could mal that could potentially malfunction and get it wrong in some cases, how could there be a biological mechanism that's innate that says, I was never meant to have balls, I'm a I'm a eunuch, or I was meant to be a cat? Right. Yeah. Oh, I was, I was part of this. Um, so at my university, there was a talk about two weeks ago about um, plurals. So people who think that they have multiple personalities, whatever they think the origin of that is. And the like the super woke professor who was talking about her research and was mentioning all of these super questionable things and not explaining them. And she'd be like, you could have like a sexual relationship with like between the personalities and you could have like some personalities who, you know, were of the same sex and they didn't get into a sexual relationship for years because of their internalized homophobia. She's saying all this crazy stuff. And then she, um, she kind of underbusses the the other kin in a way that it's like, you are going to want to take this back in like five years. You're going to feel like a heinous monster. Cause she was just like, we can't, you know, we just can't say that someone doesn't have multiple personalities the way that you can say that somebody isn't a fox, even if somebody is standing there and saying that they're a fox, like some people have said to me. And it was just like, I don't know. It's just so curious where the lines can still be drawn. Like the, at WPATH, it was like transracial, still bad. Um, ah, give it a few years. Still, fox, still questionable. I know. It's like, just wait. Like she's going to, she's going to be like tearfully recanting all of this. <laughs> of course you can be a fox. <laughs> Uh, of course we can dye your skin a darker color so that you can identify as another race. I noticed in Canada, a lot of our like forms and stuff are starting to say self-identify self yeah. as, and give it, you know, a list of ethnicities. Oh yeah. I noticed that too. Oh, any, any other crazy examples or crazy uh, themes from the, or um, I mean, benefit of the doubt stuff. I mean, like there was just it was also just like very unprofessional at times like people 
introducing themselves at an at a you know a medical conference as like kinky or as like a triple Capricorn, and it's not like it's not a joke. <laughs> or they're talking about um, the uh, like locating oneself as part of the infinite, and it's like this is some medical con like. There were just a lot of little things where you can see kind of this like overall slippage. That was but yeah I, at the U.S. Yeah. at the um, the Trans Health Summit in San Francisco. Uh, each morning, the breakfast uh, plenary was opened with a prayer. Um, oh yeah, a, a you mentioned prayer this. to the ancestors. It's just like so, so, so. Nobody can really object to it. It's basically just saying, you know, like, oh, we're thankful for the people who came before us. But it's very vague. But it but it was literally a prayer and yeah. It, it was a, I was standing next to a, a, a yeah next to a um a, a pediatrician um from Berkeley who we've had on a couple of times to talk about the experience as well. I turned to her and was like, "Is this a normal thing at a medical conference to to open with a prayer? Like, what the hell?" Yeah, yeah, but just yeah, they just slide in these little kind of yeah, just just so so religious. It's clearly these people are in need of of, of a religious outlet, and this has become that for them. Um, and unfortunately, they have done it with medicine. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We do need Jesus after all, turns out. <laughs> so. Turns out he was, all things considered, a fairly safe outlet. <laughs> yep. Yep. I used to be a yeah, Christopher Hitchens style atheist, as I've, I've said many times before. And now, while I do still remain an atheist, I, I was clearly wrong about that. We do. We need. Yeah. We humans need something and we definitely seek, do. seek it in much more dangerous places yeah yeah, yeah. we'll find really 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 self-destructive alternatives to the the more um beneficial uh historic uh, traditional ones because they i've yeah. yet to meet a christian that went to a doctor saying can you put holes in my hands right. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah oh boy yikes yeah. well thanks well for hope, here, hope, yeah, thank you and hopefully hopefully we'll Hopefully this work we're doing will change things and move the needle and Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for everything you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this and for having me on. It was really lovely to see you guys again. You too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.